Well, if you missed last week, you missed an awesome sermon. I can say that because I didn't preach last week. Uh, but last week, we got to hear from Roy and Alita, missionaries to Central African Republic. And uh, it was just amazing to hear some of their stories. And I actually got the privilege of being with them the Saturday night before for dinner. So I got to hear all kinds of great stories about crocodiles and snakes and strange creatures and things like that. But one of the things that I, I learned about them when talking to them is that they were previously missionaries in Zaire, which became Congo, for 20 years. And after that 20 years, they... They didn't want to leave, but because of military unrest, they had to evacuate. And for several weeks, they were actually refugees. Um, Now, I don't know about you, but I've seen refugee camps on TV before, and it looks like, okay, there's a tent city, and these people had to leave wherever they called home, and they're getting helicopter lifts with water and food, and so, well, it all seems okay because they're taken care of. They have stuff to eat, so get on you. Go government. Um... But far worse, I think, in talking with Roy and Alita and their experience, far worse than overcrowding and rationed food and water, is the sense of not having a place in the world. That's the the refugee experience, not having a place in the world. We are, by nature, creatures of routine. Social relationships are so important to us. How we fit into the fabric of society is where we have anchor points as human beings. When refugees are forced out of their countries and away from their homes and their jobs, they're not only physically displaced, but they're emotionally and sociologically displaced. They don't know what is up and down where home is. Staying alive is great, having a place to sleep, food and water, but staying alive is really only appealing for very long if you have hope for something to go to, something to be part of. Well, I was feeling, uh, thinking about this feeling of isolation and displacement because I think it's a human problem. Wherever we go, whether we're political refugees or not, we as people are constantly asking ourselves, whether consciously or subconsciously, where do we fit? What is our role in life? What is our position? It's, it's natural to do that, to ask those questions. And it happens at a very early age. I remember taking Sophia down to Zawanich Park, and they have this great toy structure there that's like a little ship. It's a pretend ship. So she's there going down the slide. I think I had Stella on like one of those Bjorn things. I'm just watching. And then these two brothers come. I think they're about six and four. I'm just guessing. And the oldest boy says, I'm the captain of this ship. And, and he says, you, to his little brother, you are in charge of the guns. And so, okay, okay. And then he, he just looks at Sophia and says, and you come on this adventure and you steer. And she's like, okay. So, so everyone's got their little place and it feels all comfortable until about 20 minutes later, this other little brother-sister combo comes up. And it's one of those brother-sister combos where I think they were probably seven and four or something like that. Again, guessing. But they were just playing together so well, doing, going down the slide together like a little train. And so the captain comes up to them and says, okay, I want you guys to work on the ship too. You can have the guns over here and be in charge of this. And they just looked at him like, are you who are you? And so then he tried to like, you know, well, I've got a sword and you need to do what I say. And, and they were so comfortable just doing what they were doing. They didn't even care. I think he got really frustrated. But my point is, my point is that even at an early age, people think and need to feel that they know where they stand. They, they know where the pecking order is. We know where we fit into life. And that brings us to our text this evening. 
I've been saying this since we started Ephesians, that I believe the Apostle Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians, uh, meaning it to go to many of the smaller churches in Asia Minor, as an example of how God actually sees the church. Not as how we see ourselves. So compared to Paul's other letters where he's often writing in response to some theological crisis or some kind of division in the church, he's writing this letter out of prison as the letter he's always wanted to write. This is how God actually sees us. This is what He wants us to be. The whole first chapter of Ephesians is this outburst of praise to the Father. Uh, The declarations that Paul makes here are awe-inspiring. He says we are saints and faithful in Christ Jesus, blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ, chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before God, predestined to adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to the Father, redeemed through the blood of Jesus, forgiven. He says, we have, we've had the mystery of God revealed to us. That mystery is the summing up of all things, all the life storylines, all the tragedies, all the, all the joys, summing it all up in Christ. He says, we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the down payment of our inheritance, all to the praise of the glory of His grace. And then in chapter 2, he begins with this sobering reality that each of us, every one of us, was dead in our transgressions. We were so far gone, so far living this life that was organized without God, we didn't know we were lost. But God, but God intervened in His love And in His mercy and in His grace, He rescued us. He rescued us when we weren't even knowing we needed to be rescued. And He made us alive together in Christ Jesus. He didn't just rescue us to forgive us and say, okay, go on. He rescued us and forgave us and then said, I've made you for something special. I've, cre- I, I've thought about these good works I want you to do. I've rescued you and created you as my workmanship. In fact, I'm making you a new creation. And you know what that vocation is? We're recreated to reflect God's image in the world. To reflect His character and His goodness, and His love. Oh man, that's worth living for. Then in Ephesians 2.11, Paul gives the first command of this book. In fact, Ephesians 2.11 is the only command Paul gives in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And that command is, remember, remember. Paul tells us to remember. Remember that without Jesus We were dead. Remember that Jesus rescued us out of grace and love. Not because we're so wonderful or so smart or so good looking or so male or so female or so American or so British or so Israelite. None of those reasons. He wants us to remember that we were dead and that Christ rescued us because He loved us. This is important because in Ephesians 2, 11 and 16... Paul emphasizes that Jesus died to bring shalom, to bring peace, to bring peace and unity between Jews and Gentiles, between human beings and God. And we concluded that section a couple weeks ago by admitting that we oftentimes build up walls. 
we oftentimes still build up walls. We have our little factions. Even in the church, we have our denominations. We build up walls of race, socioeconomics, you name it. And how ridiculous and offensive is it that we build up these walls when Jesus died to break them down? Well, gosh, all of that sounds good in theory. We're supposed to join Jesus in this work of breaking down walls. Well, let's go do that, church. Let's go make sure that we get along with all the other Christians and make sure that we are breaking down walls. That sounds like a great idea. We should strive to be people of reconciliation. We should strive to break down dividing walls between us and others. But it's not that simple. Because oftentimes, it's our walls that define us. Right? Justin just shared about those bikers who were, had their own identity. Had alcoholism was part of their identity. Being rough and tumble was probably part of their identity. Being tribal was part of their identity. To actually stop doing that, to become a disciple of Jesus, to break down those walls, means you've got to change the entire way you perceive yourself and ask the question, where do we fit? So for those of us, I look out in this congregation and see... All kinds of different backgrounds and different people, things behind the scenes. Whatever uh, way you define yourself, if it's with a dividing wall and you try to break that wall down, you're going to find that, wow, I don't fit there anymore. Where do I now fit? We have walls of nationalism, political party allegiances. We have allegiances to sports team. No Timbers fans in here, right? Portland Timbers? No, you're, yeah, that's a wall I'm not ready to break down. We find that, <laughs> that we fit with the people who think like us and read the same books as us and like the same music as us and, and, and go to the same church as we do. And if we take seriously this call of Jesus to breaking down dividing walls, then we've got to be willing to die, to die, to die to those old allegiances. And we're going to need to figure out afresh where we really fit. Well, Paul has some good news for us. Would you rise uh, as we read Ephesians 2, verses 17 through 22. And this is picking up Paul mid-thought here. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who are near. For through Him we each have our access in one Spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer fellow citizens with the saints. I'm sorry. You are no longer fellow... <laughs> you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Lord Jesus, give us courage as we, as we read Paul's letter here and see what, what he says is uh, the place we fit. As, as He calls us to fit into Your living temple, into Your family, into Your kingdom. Help us, Lord, to have the courage to die to those areas where we have built up walls and false security. 
It's only, Lord, by your help and your mercy and grace that we can die to those things. Amen. You may be seated. In my last sermon a couple weeks ago, um, we talked about the, the concept of peace or shalom. It was the forefront of what Paul was talking about. Shalom was what people hoped for when the Messiah would come, this, this, this great peace. And, and of course, we talked about how shalom is more than just a lack of conflict or some kind of weird inner peace where, you know, I just feel all ooey-gooey inside. But shalom is a communal idea. It's an active idea. It, it would be impossible, for example, uh, in Hebrew thought, for this side of the room to have shalom while this side is in turmoil or starving. It just it can't be that, that, that your community, you could have people suffering in it and really experiencing full shalom. So shalom is for whole communities. It's blessing. It's reconciliation. It's actively loving one another. But another element of shalom is that when we experience it, when we experience that real peace, we actually feel like we belong. We actually recognize where we fit into our surroundings and into our world. In our text this evening, we begin with a quote from Isaiah 57:19. He came and preached peace to those who were near and peace to those who were far. And in that text, back in Isaiah, God gives a message to the prophet Isaiah. Uh, they've been in captivity and some of their people are dispersed all around the land. And he says, get ready, peace is going to come. I promise you that. And it's going to come to those of you who are right here in Jerusalem and these areas and, and, and Babylon. And it's going to come to all those who are scattered about and I'm going to bring all these people in and actually um, he probably had on his mind too an idea of bringing Gentiles in as well that's a common theme in Isaiah well Paul quotes this verse most likely to describe what he thinks is going on in Jesus so Isaiah gives this prophecy hundreds of years before Jesus and says God says I promise I'm going to bring this peace to people near and far And Paul is saying, guess what? That's what Jesus did. Jesus fulfilled that idea, fulfills that prophecy. He's describing not only dispersed Jewish people, but declaring that peace has come to Jews and Gentiles in Christ. In Christ, peace is available to you and to me and to people of every continent and nation and city and village. And all of us, no matter how different our origins, we all have access to the Father through the Holy Spirit. Those walls are de facto, for really real, broken down in Christ. Then Paul uses three different metaphors to describe what the church really is, what we really can live into. The first is a political metaphor. He says, we're no longer strangers and aliens, but we are fellow citizens with the saints, with the holy ones. If you recall from verse 12, Paul makes the point that the Gentiles, that means you and I who are not Jewish, uh, we were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants and promises that were given to that people. We were strangers, we were aliens, we were refugees. And now he's saying that we're not merely part of the Jewish tradition, but both Jews and Gentiles have become a new people of God in Christ. And I believe Paul is not just talking about a new politic, he's talking about the kingdom of God. In fact, the kingdom of God, of course, is one of Jesus' central messages. 
He proclaims it in the beginning of Mark, in the, in the first chapter. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. So repent. Turn around from the way you've been living and trust in this good news that God's kingdom is breaking in. Paul is saying that the old boundaries of nation and politics, of Republicans and Democrats and independents, they must come down because they don't ultimately define us. In Jesus, we are all part of the kingdom of God. So while it's good and right, it is good and right to be loyal to your country, to have some sort of you know, patriotic bone in your body. It, it is good. But when those things come into conflict with the way of the kingdom of God, we need to choose the kingdom of God. We need to choose to follow Jesus over any other earthly allegiances. And frankly, that's really good news. Right now, there are millions of people around the world who don't have countries to call their own. There are over 150,000 at least people between Burma and Thailand who are just sitting there in no man's land, no country, no passport, no services. Nobody wants them. Can you imagine how that would feel? Just over a week and a half ago, maybe two weeks ago, I was reading an article about a country in the South Pacific, an island nation with 100,000 or so people on it, that because of rising sea levels, they have to evacuate. They're literally losing their country. And they're in talks with Fiji and some of the other Pacific Islands to get their people integrated into those cultures and societies. They're just done. Could you imagine if the United States just didn't exist anymore and we had to go do something else and be a different kind of people? It's a good reminder, I think, of how temporary all of this, this, this false sense of security that we have really is. Remember, when Paul's writing this letter... It's the height of the Roman Empire. Ephesus is in the Roman Empire. Paul is a Roman citizen. It was the most powerful uh, empire the world had ever known, at least those people in the Mediterranean. And if you were one of the top 5% in the Roman Empire in the first century, oh man, wonderful culture, communications, transportation, relative peace. It was called the Peace of Rome, the Pax Romana. You were living the high life. It was the best thing you'd ever seen. But of course, if you were the lower 95%, it was all built on your back with oppressive military actions that would come and just take lands, take your town, make you pay taxes, make you become a slave. It was one of the most oppressive empires as well. The good news is that ultimately in Christ, we are part of His kingdom. Not any of these kingdoms of the world. You know that Rome, nobody thought it would fall at that time. I mean, it was this invincible. And yet every political system falls. Every leader eventually falls. The only thing that's secure is this kingdom of heaven that we have available to us in Christ. Well, political imagery is important. Paul talks about it, but I, I also think it's very impersonal. Until, <laughs> until your island nation becomes sunk with water, we're just simply not going to believe that that's going to happen. So Paul moves us to a second image, and he says that the church is like part of God's household. He says in verse 18 that through the Spirit, God is our Father. 
And he reinforces that by saying, we are part of God's family. This is personal language, and it helps us to see where we fit in in a family system. See, in the Mediterranean world, your father was more than just 50% of your DNA, 50% of your biology, right? Uh, especially the oldest male in a family was called the paterfamilias. And that paterfamilias, well, you had to run everything through him. So, uh, if you wanted to get married, you've got to run that through the paterfamilias, the, the main head of your family line. If you want to do a certain vocation, you've got to run that through the paterfamilias. You want to name your kid, a lot of times you have to make sure that the paterfamilias likes your kid's name. But in return, in return, you would, uh, you would get... Wonderful protection. The paterfamilias was responsible for paying your head tax that everyone had to pay in the Roman Empire. The paterfamilias would maintain your honor. And most importantly, you got like a whole posse of people. So if someone uh, offends your honor, say our, let's say this is a whole clan over here, and uh, this Josh Burdick, you are the paterfamilias, you're the head honcho, and somebody offends Jeannie uh, over here, well, Jeannie, that's your whole posse. And they're coming to bat for you, see? So it's this whole system of security, the family security. Of course, for the lower social classes, which was the majority of the Roman Empire, your paterfamilias was relatively weak. And if you were a slave class, which a large uh, population of people was, you didn't have a paterfamilias, you had a master. You might be part of his household, but you didn't get much protection. But in Christ, see what Paul's saying here? In Christ, we have this new father. We have a new paterfamilias. We have uh, not just some powerful person, but we have the creator of heaven and earth. You want to talk about security and protection? This, this, this paterfamilias can offer you eternal life. You see how much good news this would have been to a first century person, especially in the lower classes. Under his care, we who follow Jesus are brothers and sisters. You may not feel like you fit into the world very properly, but in Christ you have a new family, you have a new people. Look around. Seriously, like look around. Like these are your people. In Christ. Your family, you fit. So far, Paul has talked about the church being a new kingdom, a new politic. And he's talked about the, uh, the church being a new family. Those are two important metaphors. But now he introduces a third metaphor, the temple. We talked a couple of weeks ago about how Jesus broke down the dividing walls. Uh, and, and part of that being an imagery of the temple, where in the temple you were separated by uh, Jews and Gentiles and women and men and priests and laity. And so Jesus broke down those walls so that we could all have access to God. But here Paul is emphasizing a different aspect of the temple. Elizabeth read quite well earlier from uh, 1 Kings in which Solomon dedicates that first temple. And although Solomon knew, and he even said it in his de uh, dedication, he knew that God couldn't be contained in a building, there's still something special about that building. About, uh, it was a belief that it was almost as if heaven and earth were kissing in that holy of holy place. It was the place maybe that the people felt closest to God. So there, there's this idea of God's glory, His Shekinah glory, dwelling in that temple. It represented God's very presence with His people. But there's more. In 1 Kings 8, 41-43, Solomon asks that God would answer the prayers of Gentiles, foreigners, people outside of the covenant. 
anyone who would come to the temple and seek God's face, Solomon asks that God would hear their prayer. Paul is saying then that in these days after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, that the people of God are being fitted together as a temple of God, where God's glory dwells. Think of the significance of that statement. To the Jews, the temple in Jerusalem was the center of their identity. It was where the presence of God dwelt and it was a symbol of their national pride and of them being covenant people. Okay, so the temple was this huge physical marker of their identity. In Ephesus, the temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was um, the pride of the Ephesians where uh, the goddess Artemis lived. It was also the center of their banking. Uh, Even uh, some of the Roman emperors put their money in the temple of Artemis, thinking no one would seriously plunder this because it's so holy. Artisans made their whole life, uh, their, their whole living making little figurines of Artemis and things like that. So... This was more than just a religious space. It was a national identity. So Paul's writing in 60-62 AD. Do you know that in 70 AD the temple fell? The Jerusalem temple? If you go to Ephesus today, the temple of Artemis is in ruins. What, What Paul is saying is that this new thing God is doing in His people, this new temple He's making with people, will far outlast any physical building in the world. The new new temple of God is built on Jesus. He's the cornerstone. He's the main building block. He's a stone so perfect and large, the rest of the building is fitted based on Him. Uh, Ancient archaeologists have found an ancient uh, cornerstone in Jerusalem, 570 tons. This thing is gigantic. What you would do when you make a building is you put that cornerstone down, you get a plum and square, and then every other stone is based off of that cornerstone. If the cornerstone is good and square, then the whole building is squared up to it and it becomes straight and it will stand. So Paul is saying that this new temple is built on the cornerstone of Christ. And it's also built on a foundation of apostles and prophets. Those are those, that special community of people in the early church who received the revelation of God. And you know what? They weren't innovators necessarily, but what they did, the apostles and prophets, is proclaim the life of Jesus. So really... You've got Jesus as the cornerstone and the apostles and prophets who are just telling us the story of Jesus. So that means the whole foundation of this new temple is Jesus. And you, through your faith in Christ, have been handpicked. Don't roll your eyes and think that I'm talking about the person behind you. You. You have been handpicked through your faith in Christ. Handpicked for a particular spot in that temple mound. Now, great, you might be thinking. I'm listening to a sermon where this guy's telling me I'm another brick in the wall. Didn't Pink Floyd have a song about that? It wasn't good. Don't miss, don't miss the good news of being fitted into this growing temple of God and the Spirit. First of all, you know what this means? It means that you belong. It means that you fit. If you're afraid of dying to that old self, of dying to the security of those old dividing walls, Paul is saying, 
you're not just out in limbo. You actually have a place to fit. And it is in this growing temple of the living God. Not all the stones in the church are of the same size or from the same quarry. We don't all look the same. We don't all smell the same. We don't all talk the same. But we all have our place and our fit and our role. Your role in this growing temple of God is vital. You've been gifted by the Holy Spirit to help strengthen and equip the church, this living temple of God. That's pretty good. I could probably stop right there. But there's another thing. Uh, Second, speaking of strengthening others, you are built, you and I, on a foundation of others. We we get to the the privilege, I think, of coming at this thing almost 2,000 years after the foundation was laid. Thousands of years of faithful followers of Jesus are around us. And we are forming part of this temple that others will be built upon. Third, you're only part of God's temple because of the others. So let me me make this straight. You by yourself are not the temple of God. We, the church, not just Lettered Streets, not just the church in the United States, all around the world, and not just the church of 2012, but the church of all time, those who have gone before, those who will come after, are being built up into this holy temple of God. To put it bluntly, get over yourself. I said that to me a couple of times when I was rehearsing this. i got to get over myself. Trust me. It is the most freeing thing we can do. This is actually a gift to be one little stone in this massive growing temple of God. It is a gift of freedom. Get over yourself. You're part of something much bigger. You're nothing by yourself. Since we are only the temple of God in community, we can be free to actually find contentment. And hey, guess what? God chose me just the way that I am, the way that I look with my background. And we don't have to fall into that trap of comparing ourselves with everybody else, saying, I wish I were like him, or I wish I was like her. God chose you. And we need you to be part of this living temple. To be who you are. Most importantly, you and I, our lives in Christ, we are called the temple of the living God. The place where His glory dwells. You know, in Greek, there's a couple different ways to talk about a temple. There's this word yeron, which means uh, kind of like the structure. So we were talking about this building being a temple. We'd say, oh yeah, the yeron is the, the walls and the, the cross beams. It's the structure. You know, so I might talk about the temple mount or something like that. That's the yeron. But there's this other word for temple. Naas. And the naas, when we use that word, it's talking about what's in the temple, the glory of God. We use the word naas when we're talking about like the holy place in the temple where God dwells. Well, Paul uses that word naas in this text. He says that we are, are being fitted together to be the part of the temple where God actually dwells, His presence. So on the one hand, what an amazing privilege. What an amazing plan God has. He, he wants to house His goodness and His glory in His creation. Man, I could think of a lot of better places to put His goodness and glory than me, or you, or us. No offense, but I think you probably feel the same way. He doesn't put His presence in the walls of a building. He puts His presence in and through His people. 
So let me ask you this. When you think of your brothers and sisters around you with all of our imperfections and all of our sin, is your first reaction to fall on your knees in awe and wonder that God shows us to be His temple? Or is your first reaction to be a bit judgmental and disappointed that the people around you aren't something a little more? You see, that's all part of the gospel. The good news is that Jesus chose us in all our different shapes and sizes and strengths and weaknesses, in our grace and in our sin. He died that we might become the living temple of the living God. It's by His grace we have been saved, and by grace we've been added to this living temple. And by grace, you and I are called to house the holy. So I'm going to do this again. Look around, but seriously, look around. Look, look at some people. These brothers and sisters that you're looking at are living stones, living pieces of the living temple. If that's true, and I believe Paul, otherwise I wouldn't preach it, because this is true, how then shall we live? Seriously. If we are the temple of God, how then shall we live? How, how should we treat one another? What does the world learn about God when it sees us? When it thinks of lettered streets? When it thinks of the church in general? When it thinks of your Bible study group? When your coworkers are watching your Christian friendship? What, what do they think about God by looking at us? See, when we wrestle with those kinds of questions, and we start to make changes to being more Christ-like, that's called repentance. I know, pretty cool. And that is what Jesus asks of us. That is what separates those who think Jesus is just a really nice guy, and those who think that he is actually Savior and King. And beckons us, come and follow. Would you pray with me? Father, I just confess I can't wrap my mind around the fact that you've called us and me to be part of this living temple where you would actually, I don't know, it seems risky to, to have made this kind of plan. I, I'm glad I'm not God. I probably would have done it differently. <laughs> How amazing. How amazing, Lord, that you would seek to make yourself known through people. To express yourself, even through this small congregation here in the lettered streets. Thank you, Lord, for giving us a place to fit. And as you know, Father, we have such a hard time really believing that we fit anywhere. We read these words of Paul, um, these glorious words of being adopted by you, of being part of your kingdom, of being part of your household, of being this living temple, and yet we look in the mirror and say, certainly not us. Jesus, help us to get over ourselves. Jesus, you didn't die, I believe, for us to, to wallow and to grovel and to um, 
to be so selfish and self-centered. Help us, Lord, to have courage. Courage to leave our old life, our old ways behind. And to embrace your kingdom living. To embrace um, our position in your family. To know you as Father deep in our hearts, not just in our heads. And help us to embrace the glory that it is to be part of your living temple. Lord, I pray that you continue to make us more like Jesus. So that when the world thinks about our church and the church, you would be glorified. Thank you, Lord. Amen.